Sometimes we talk about what would life be like if you could spend five minutes with a famous person. And maybe they're not famous to anyone else but you, you know, maybe you want to meet the grandfather that you've never met, or um, maybe you look back to your family history and there were uh, no believers until a particular point in time, and so you want to meet the man that led your great-grandma to Christ that then changed, you know, the whole direction of your, your family. Uh, maybe you want to meet the Apostle Paul, maybe you want to meet Moses. I think it'd be fascinating to spend five minutes with Jesus. And I, I, we, we fascinate sometimes with, uh, what, would he tell us, what would he tell us to do? What new information would he give us? What, what new revelation would there be? And the truth is, there wouldn't be. There wouldn't be. He, he's already told us exactly what he wants. And so as we continue our series in the last words, we probably come to the most famous last words that we'll look at in the entire series. When we were talking about the last words of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those were obscure. No one had probably ever heard, I had never heard a sermon preached on the last words of the patriarchs. But when we come to Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew, known as the Great Commission, we've heard it. We've got some RAs in here that could probably recite it for us. It's something that we're familiar with. And I want you for just a second to, to imagine, imagine something here. Jesus is God. He knows all things. He has the opportunity to say whatever he wants for his last words. Okay, he, he could, for his last words, have said a whole plethora of different things. He could have said something about love. He could have said something about doctrine and how important it is to guard the truth. He could talk about having fortitude in the midst of persecution. He could talk about morality and how to be good boys and good girls. And he chooses to talk about mission. Mission. We like it and we don't like it. Now, here's the challenge. Let me say this at the outset, okay? Um, I'm going to ask you to out yourself here, okay? And this is, this is hard. Let me start with the easy one first. If you are an extrovert and know it, raise your hand. If you're an extrovert, you don't do like this. It's like, rock on. Any extroverts in the house? A few of you. All right. This is the hard part. If you're an introvert, raise your hand. <laughs> it's hard to ask introverts to raise their hand. They don't want to do it. Here's the challenge when we talk about mission, and I want to establish this at the beginning. I think the extroverts have won the conversation about evangelism, and the extroverts have made it sound like if you don't do evangelism the way we do it, talking to strangers and knocking on doors, then you can't be faithful in sharing. That's not true. Here's, here's the thing that's great. I can look at David Jones, and I can look at uh, Joe Mazingo. I can look at Henry Grantham. I can look at Augusta Bennett because she's an extrovert. She's not going to mind me calling her out. Um, <clears throat> and I can go, different personalities, different gifts. God, wa- God can use every single one of us in the job of proclaiming the gospel, and it's not going to look exactly the same. Here's the thing that's amazing. When we talk about mission, instead of like folding your arms and going, all right, preacher's going to make me feel guilty about doing something that I don't want to do. Listen, if you don't want to do it, that's a completely different problem. We need to introduce you to a friend of ours named Jesus. And he needs to change your heart because you should want to. You might not be good at it, but you should want to be better, right? That, there, that would be a great place for an amen. 
We should want to be better at it and recognize the reality of where we're at. But I want you to understand something that happens with the Gideons, and they're a great example of this. You could be an incredible evangelist by not saying anything and simply handing someone a Bible. That's what they do when they go to a prison. There might be an opportunity for a conversation, but there are more people that come by and just grab the Bible. And you have no idea. You have just handed them a lit fuse on a stick of dynamite. You have no idea what's going to happen. So please don't listen with preconceived notions about gospel sharing. Oh, I've tried it. Doesn't work. It's not for me. I'm not called. If you're a Christian, you're called. Okay, let's settle that. You have a responsibility to share. So now let's acknowledge the elephant in the room, acknowledge that the way these people do evangelism is great for them, may not be great for you, and there may be other ways that we can all make the gospel more important. Because you know what happens if you don't make the gospel important? You make all kinds of secondary and tertiary issues important, and you forget to make the main thing the main thing. It happens in every church across America, not just Northside. It happens everywhere. So we want to talk about Jesus' last words, in the Great Commission, and it starts, Matthew 28, verse 18, with a bold claim. A bold claim. He says this in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I love the way that this begins because it says that Jesus came to his disciples. Not that his disciples came to him. He he, he came to us in the incarnation and at the very end of his ministry, he's still, he is still seeking people out. He comes to them. He doesn't wait for them to, to come to him. And he says something. He says, I have all, all authority. This is a change from how we've known Jesus in the rest of the Gospels. Because we've not known Jesus as someone with all authority. We've known Jesus as someone who is disrespected and someone who is a penniless preacher and someone who is meek and mild, and rejected by the establishment. But now, oh, things are different because he was dead and now he's alive. And he's no longer veiled uh, in the same way that he was in his uh, incarnation before he was crucified. Now he can say, it's out. I've done come back from the dead. I'm not a normal human being. I have all authority. And if you need to know what kind of authority he has, he fills in the blank for us. He says, all authority which means there is nothing in the heavens that is an authority over me because he's God. Like, he can't say that if he's just a man. If he says he has all authority in heaven, he is a liar unless he's God. And he says, by the way, there's no human authority that's over me too. So don't you worry when they say, hey, you're not allowed to talk like that. I'm giving you my authority, authority over everything. The word authority comes from the word author. If he is your author, he is your creator, he has authority. So sometimes I think as Christians, we get really bashful because we, you know, we come up to this person, you know, and we're, you know, meek and mild and we want to share with this person. And 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 they go, Well, that's good for you. It's not it's not good for me. If he is her creator, he is her authority too. Just like he's your authority. It, the question is whether she recognizes it or not. And this is a really strange thing. Because the difference between our first and second service is really stark when you consider culture uh, that you grew up in. That culture grew up in a respectful culture. You have grown up in a culture that doesn't respect anybody. Listen, you don't even respect yourselves. 
There are more self-esteem issues with our younger generation because you don't know how to respect others. You don't even know how to respect yourself. And so I don't know if you've ever gone through the process of trying to correct someone else's children. You ever tried that? You know, you see a kid acting up, you go to correct them, and it doesn't matter how old they are. It just matters how precocious they are. Who made you an authority over me? Wouldn't happen in a different culture, but that's where we're at today. We have to, and, and, and this makes it even more stark and more important, if we live in a culture that does not respect any authority, don't bring that junk into God's house. You have to recognize God's authority or you're not a Christian. If you are, you're a terribly disobedient one. Because to be a Christian means to put yourself under God's authority. And so just because you grew up in a culture that doesn't recognize any authority, oh, listen, you want to talk about what it means to be different as a believer, different from a lost and dying world? It's this issue. It's we are under authority. God's in charge, and He gets to tell us what to do. He has that authority to issue orders. It's Memorial Day. We think about servicemen and servicewomen standing at attention, marching, and they don't have freedom. They march under authority. So Jesus uses this bold claim, this authority that he has, all authority in heaven and all authority on earth to issue an order. That's where we see our second point. Jesus offers a serious command. Serious command. Verse 19 and the beginning part of verse 20. He says this, go therefore. Now what's the therefore? Anytime you've heard this, anytime you see a therefore, you need to figure out what the therefore is there for. The therefore flows from the authority. He has authority. He can make a command. So he says, therefore, because I have all authority on heaven and earth, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He tells us that he has authority. He uses that authority to issue a command. And the command is this, make disciples. Make disciples. We, t- we, talk about, we talk about cooking. We talk about making something from scratch. That's not something my family knows a whole lot about. But we, we make it from a box. We don't make it from scratch. We make it from a recipe. When you make disciples, you make them from scratch. And then they're not, and then they are. You have, to, you have to work hard, and he gives a recipe. And this whole idea of making disciples, it, I love to talk about making disciples because I think sometimes we take two things that we're supposed to be involved in, evangelism and discipleship, and we like stick a wedge in them and spread them apart like they're separate things. Who do you disciple? People you have evangelized. <laughs> they go together. You know, there are some people that go, all right, I'm, you know, this guy here on the front row, you know, the front row is in a Baptist church, it's the third row. So this guy in the front row, you know, he needs Jesus. I come and I share with him and he prays and put that notch on my belt. All right, Josh, have fun. Hope you make it, you know, Uh, have fun storming the castle, you know, whatever it is. Um, And we're done. No one would ever have a kid, deliver a baby and leave it on the sidewalk in front of the hospital. Doesn't make it. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cared for. And that's the difference between evangelism. Evangelism is the labor and delivery. Discipleship is the nurturing and raising. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to make disciples. 
that making disciples is the only verb in the entire passage. Everything else that looks like a verb in your English language is a participle. A participle is typically an ing word. All of the participles in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 describe the process of how to make disciples. Here's what's awesome. Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do. He tells us how to do it. He gives us an example, and he, he, he enumerates a list. So what is a disciple? The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says this. A disciple is someone who has a direct dependence of the one under instruction upon an authority superior in knowledge. So it is someone who is a, a baby in Christ, related, related in a kind of an authority position to someone who is more mature, someone who, someone who knows enough to feed themselves and to be able to feed someone else, a parent. Somebody who can take that responsibility. Uh, a disciple has been described as someone who is a learner, a follower. But even better than that, it's a word that I think is underappreciated in our vocabulary. It is someone who is an apprentice. Now, that's not just a television show. It's not, not just a reality game show. An apprentice is someone, particularly in a trade, who, who comes in not knowing much, who gets associated with a, a senior person who is uh, an expert in that field, and that person who knows what they're doing apprentices the apprentice so that they are brought up to the level of the, the master. They are apprenticed into it. So here's, here's my question, okay? Again, introverts, there, there are far more introverts in here than there are extroverts. So this is, this is audience participation. I'm asking everyone to do this. And I don't, I don't want to see the results of this poll. I don't. But if I ask the question, how many of you were apprenticed into the Christian faith? Not programmed. Not herded in a class like cattle. How many of you were apprenticed? How many of you had someone, when you became a Christian, came alongside you and personally, personally, not programmatically, personally discipled you? taught you what to think, taught you how to, how to react, taught you how to study the Bible, taught you how to practice the spiritual disciplines. Who in here was apprenticed? Keep your hands up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. How does Jesus say things are supposed to happen? You're supposed to be apprenticed. So what happened to the rest of you that weren't the 11 that raised your hand, like me? I was programmed discipled, not personally discipled. Now listen, programs are not bad, but programs are not personal. Programs are not someone coming alongside you. And so here's the deal. 90% of you didn't raise your hand. 90% of you didn't raise your hand. So this is going to be hard for you to hear, but what happened with you is not the way that it's supposed to be. You know that? And, and what's so messed up is we, we see this in marriage. When you get married, you think the way that you do things is right because it's the way your family trained you to be. And then your spouse thinks the way that they do things is right because it's the way her family trained her to be. And then there's conflict. The challenge is your personal experience colors your expectations. And if you've not been personally discipled, then you think it's normal for no one to be. Jesus is here using his authority to issue a command, and he's saying personal disciple-making is what the way Christians are supposed to... It's, it's part of the recipe of how they're supposed to be put together. 
So I, I have to say this. Our churches are broken when it comes to discipleship. We've substituted a program for personal disciple-making. We should stop right now and repent and, and pray that God helps us to change that. We can't think that the, what has happened for us is normal. And we should want to do more for the next generation than what was done for us. And honestly, that's a large reason why I'm in ministry. I don't have anybody come alongside me and really encourage me. And uh, if I can help people to not make the same mistakes that I made, if I can be for someone else what, what, what didn't happen for me, that's what I want to do. Jesus is here describing what is normal. He says disciple-making. Personal disciple-making is normal. He goes on here. In the command, he gives us a, a really simple three-step program, a three-principle, three three-component program for making disciples. First word is go. Or better, going. As you are going, make disciples. Going where? This is where it gets good. I think sometimes when we talk about the going nature of making disciples, we're tempted to make one of two errors. Both of them are really bad. They're not going to sound bad because they'll sound pious because we dress them up. Sometimes we make disciple-making sound too foreign. Like, well, you're obviously not a good disciple-maker if you've not invested thousands of dollars to go overseas on an international mission trip. We make it too foreign. On the other hand, sometimes we make it too domestic. Oh, you know what? We don't need to go to India because we've got all kinds of lost people right here. Man, I don't need to go to the nations. Let's just go to our neighborhoods. Okay, which one of those do you want to choose? You want to, you want to be forced to pick and choose? Or does the Bible say we're supposed to do both? Neighbors and nations, both. Don't make it too foreign. Don't take, make it too domestic. The idea is as you go, everywhere you go. If you go to the gas station, if you go to the supermarket, if you go to a kid's sporting event, if you go to whatever the race is today up in Charlotte, as you go to the race, as you go, make disciples. But be willing to go places to make disciples. You don't ever just go to the grocery store to get groceries. Maybe God has an encounter there for you. And I sit there and I go, you know, you heard this testimony of this guy that was in jail, gets saved. And how many people has he, has he played a role in them coming to faith in Christ? 800 people. Listen, introverts, let me encourage you. All you may do is hand out a Bible. And you may have the opportunity to be a part of the process of converting the next Apostle Paul, who right now is a persecutor and despiser of the church. But because of your faithfulness and propagating the gospel, they become an apostle that does far more than you would ever hope or dream because you're an introvert. Listen, this was a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme. You definitely want that guy on your team. If money was involved, we'd all be all for it. We're talking about reaching the nations. And you are one person away from perhaps helping to win the next Billy Graham. Somebody's going to do it. Why shouldn't it be you? Go. Go. Our job is to not just wait for them to show up, we're supposed to go to the highways and byways to compel them to come in. We're supposed to do what we can. We're supposed to be willing to sacrifice, not just for our brothers and sisters, but for future potential brothers and sisters. So the first component is go. Second component is baptize. This is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a once-for-all initiation. 
you should not be baptized more than once. Now, the challenge is, and I'm dealing with this with my own kids, one of the reasons my kids don't want to be baptized is they've heard so many testimonies of people that said, yeah, I was baptized when I was six years old, but I didn't really come to understand the gospel until I was 30. My kids tell me, I don't want to be that person. I want to know that I know. I go, that's great. But if you know, you should obey. Baptize is the once for all initiation. And the way that I like to say it is it's the way you put the team jersey on. That makes sense. You're not just a fan. Now you're a part of the team. You've got the jersey. And I'm not talking about, you know, some couch potato who goes and buys a jersey with his own name on it. I'm talking about like actually legitimately being on the team. Baptism is the way you make your public confession to Christ. It's the way you put the team jersey on and identify with God and with his people. I think this is interesting. When you stop for just a second to think about all the truths that are communicated in baptism, he begins by saying, you are to baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's bad grammar. We would expect him to say into the names, plural, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he says name singular. Bad grammar, good theology. This is perhaps one of the most um, explicit teachings in the New Testament related to a trinity. One of the truths of the of baptism that baptism teaches is that God is a trinity. Second thing that it teaches is that you are committed to Christ. Again, we said this is the way that you are initiated, the way that you put the jersey on. This is the way that you are expressing commitment to Christ. It's the way you make your public confession of Christ. And I love the way the New Testament talks about it because it says that we are both baptized unto Christ and that we are baptized into Christ. We are part of His body, the church. We are showing that we are committed. So baptism teaches about the Trinity. It teaches about commitment to Christ. One of the things that's interesting, when you go to um, Hindu countries, uh, my most frequent experience is more with Hindu countries than Muslim countries, but in both, the, the watershed issue is baptism. You'll have somebody that will confess Christ in a Hindu or a Muslim context, but they know that persecution begins once they're baptized. Baptism is the line in the sand. And, and they know baptism is a serious issue. Sometimes as parents, we go, oh, you know, let's get our kid baptized. If it doesn't take the first time, we can do it a second time or a third time or a fourth time. Well, let me suggest that sometimes non-believers get the significance of baptism better than we do. This is not a trifle that should happen four, five, six times in our kid's life every time they go to summer camp. No, 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 no. This is a commitment that is being made that they've got to be ready for. Third truth that is taught in baptism is that Jesus is your substitute. Now, when you say substitute, the immediate thing that you think about is substitute teacher, and that was a party all day long. Don't got to listen. Don't got to do work. We got a substitute. Woo-hoo! No, that's not the kind of substitute that we're talking about. We're talking about that Jesus substituted and died the death that you deserve. What is pictured in baptism is symbolic for you, but it's a reality for him. We baptize you, and we bury you into the water like Jesus was buried in the grave for just a few seconds. His was three days. We don't We take the Bible literally, but not when it comes to baptism. We don't want to hold you under the water for three days. That's not good. Then it would not be a symbolic death, okay? And then we raise you up to walk in newness of life. Symbol for you, reality for him. Because Jesus paid the price. You don't have to because you've placed your faith in him. Number four, fourth and final. uh, One of the truths of baptism is sanctification has begun. Sanctification has begun. We baptize, we we bury like Jesus was buried in the grave. We raise to walk in, somebody help me, newness of life. 
You are dying to your old way of life, and you are claiming allegiance to a new king. A new life has begun. Incredible truths. Just discipling someone to get to the point where they're ready for baptism. There are incredible truths that should be taught. Should you be baptized if you don't believe God is a trinity? Nope. You might end up a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, but you're not a Christian. It's latent. You're supposed to baptize them into the name. And if you're supposed to baptize them into the name, they should know what they're being baptized into. It's the act of discipleship. Third thing, going, baptizing. Number three, teaching. Teaching. If baptism is a once and for all initiation, teaching is a perpetual and lifelong task. How many of you learned everything that you needed to about the Christian life? What? I don't see a single deacon or Sunday school teacher raising their hand. You've learned everything that you can learn. You're never going to do it. Never going to do it. We've got a Sunday school teacher here who, um, if I asked him, would be able to tell me how many Sunday school lessons he's taught. It's like 700-something. I think today was 711. 52 weeks a year. It's going to take you a while to get 711 Sunday school lessons, right? Here's what's great. The Bible says that teaching is a fulfillment of the Great Commission. There are things that you need to know. We're not talking about minimal content to the maximum number of people. We're talking about teaching people to obey. There's a moral component to this. What is taught is to be kept. What is taught is to be obeyed. Not just fill people's lives, but minds up with information. We want the gospel to be a way of life, not just a belief. We want people to be gospeling people. And so here's, here's the challenge, okay? The way that we make disciples is we are going and sharing. We are baptizing and we are teaching. That, that's the process of making disciples, going, baptizing, and teaching. If non-Christians are not hearing the gospel, we're not being obedient to the first part of the Great Commission. If baby Christians are not being nurtured and raised up, then we're not being obedient to this last part of the Great Commission. You have to find a balance. You want to be well-rounded. We want to be going. We want to be teaching. So let me do this. I'm not good at math. My timer's running, so I can't switch over to my calculator. 168 hours in a week, right? Is that right? 168 hours in a week? So let's just assume that there's four weeks in a month. I know that some months have a fifth week. So 168 times four, let's say 720 hours in a month. That sound about ballpark? 672? 672. 600 and, uh, do I hear 673 going once, going twice? There we go, 744. Somewhere between 600 and 700 something hours in a month. I'm going to ask you all to do a math problem here. Would you all be willing Introvert or extrovert, regardless. Hey, I'm hearing Jesus' authority. He's saying we need to do this. I hear his command. I'm willing to give up two hours a month to do evangelism. What percentage is two of 720? I don't even have to do the math. No, that's way under 1%. You might spend more time eating a meal when you will. You do spend more time eating meals than you over the course of a month than you would two hours. One of the challenges that I, I'm radically convicted about is that we don't, as a church, value evangelism. Now, you may hear me say that and go, well, that's not true. Um, if our primary program hours, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, 
are not committed to evangelism. You can yell at me till you're red in the face. You're not going to convince me that evangelism is a priority. Oh, well, you know, you could do it on Saturday morning. Yeah, you know what you do when you do something on Saturday morning? You've just told 99.9% of the people it's not important enough for us to change anything to make it a priority. So 99.9% of you don't need to show up. Like, you need the church filling other things in on your calendar, right? Last time I checked, y'all's calendar's busy. We need to change some things in our program to make evangelism more of a priority. We have the freedom to do that this summer. We've got a number of things coming up that are family fun nights of the summer. We start next week with graduate recognition and those best words in English, ice cream potluck. Mm, I can, I'm ready for it already. If I preach much longer, my stomach's going to start growling. Ice cream potluck, family fun night. Uh, June 10th, the Seeds concert is going to be amazing. Hope that you're here. We're going to a um, Charlotte Knights baseball game. We've got several things like that coming up. Uh, but on Sunday nights where we don't have anything going on, we're going to have a group of people that gather down in the fellowship hall from 4 to 6, and we're going to train on sharing the gospel, and we're going to go out. We're going to knock on doors. And i got people here that say, hey, listen, we've knocked on every door in this neighborhood three times. Not going to do it anymore. Well, you know what? It's new people living in those houses. People don't live in this neighborhood for more than three months, it seems like. We're going to knock on the doors. We're going to knock on the doors. We're going to go to Cherry Park, and we're just going to go walk around with our spouse and pray that God sends us the right person to talk to. And maybe it's a little bitty conversation. Maybe it's the full thing. We've got uh, high school students and college students that go almost every Sunday to play uh, Ultimate Frisbee at Winthrop Lake. What if uh, high school and college kids, what if you actually invited someone who's at the park to play with us? Not only because we're being nice, but because we want the opportunity to share the gospel with them. As you go, as you go to play Frisbee, be prepared to make disciples. And here's the challenge. We're going to start next Sunday night. And because it's evangelism, everybody's going, oh, great. We don't got anything to do Sundays for the rest of the summer. I get to chill out. I don't know why evangelism has become a four-letter word. Or I don't know why. We just all assume, I'm not called. And I think part of it is we've, we've tried to force everyone into an extrovert mold, and you don't need to do that. Um, find somebody who's an introvert here. Miss Faye, can I pick on you? Okay. All right, here's why I'm picking on Miss Faye. Number one, she, she made eye contact with me, which you're not supposed to do. Number two, I happen to know that she's a pretty good cook, okay? So who, who are one of my extroverts? Do I have any extroverts? See, there's none, because like if you're an extrovert, you're like raising your hand. Augusta, great, okay? Now, Augusta, I don't have to worry about Augusta speaking it out. She's an extrovert. She's going to, you know, go big or go home. Miss um, Faye, I'm not going to count on Miss Faye maybe to be an extrovert. Now, Miss Faye wants to share the gospel too, but if I tell her she's got to be like Augusta, probably not going to happen. I say, all right, let's go knock on doors and meet people who come to the door with shotguns and tell us to get off their front porch. No, not for me, not for me, not going to do it. But she's a really good cook. Now, Augusta is too, so let's say it's David instead. I want Miss Faye cooking for me, not David, you know. Um, so let's say Miss Faye says, I want to reach my neighbors. I don't know what to say. And Augusta goes, well, I know what to say. And they go, all right, hey, maybe we do this. Maybe you cook and invite and put Augusta on your invite list, and she does the talking. You know what's amazing? You know what we've just done? Miss Faye has taken something that is easy and natural for her, and she is serving the gospel with her gift. 
Does she get credit for doing evangelism? This is yes. She is gospeling by serving the gospel. You want another, just off the top of the head, giving to the Gideons is a way to be involved in gospeling. They'll, you know they'll do it for you. I mean, they get chased off out of places all the time. You know, they're unashamed about doing it. And so here's the issue. This summer, we've got four or five family fun nights planned. The rest of them, we're going to go out. Maybe we come to your neighborhood because you say, hey, we'd like our neighborhood to be reached. Maybe we go to the parks. Maybe we go to the mall. It is going to be uncomfortable. But you know what? You've got to get over that. Is it worth obeying? Uh, is it worth recognizing the authority of Jesus and the command of Jesus to do what he's told us to do? It is. So we're going to drill, 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 till you get over yourself. Do you know what to say so that it rolls off the tongue like water for ducks back? Too much about us. Let me go to our third and final point. Jesus issues a bold claim. I have all authority. He offers a serious, he issues a serious command. Go and make disciples, and you do that by going, by baptizing, by teaching. And then he offers an incredible comfort in verse 20. He says this, King James, people, you, you, you know it a little bit differently here. It says, behold, King James says, lo. Not, that's not like short people. It's behold. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. An incredible comfort. And here's what I love. You know, the, the temptation sometimes is to make too much of ourselves. And here's what we got to do. And here's what we got to do. And here's what we got to do. Two of the three points here this morning begins with Jesus' authority ends with Jesus' comfort, his presence, and in the middle, sandwiched between all of that, is his command. Where's the emphasis? Does the emphasis need to be on us, or does the emphasis need to be on him? It needs to be on him. He's two out of the three points. So the whole entire purpose in all of this is we do what we do because he is who he is. Is there a better reason? No. No. Because of his authority, because of his presence, we obey his command. There are all kinds of incredible ways in which you can experience God's presence through prayer, through worship, and through Bible study. But I will tell you, you will never experience the power or the presence of God like you will in sharing the gospel. And what is sad for me is that many Christians, perhaps even the majority, have never truly experienced God's presence because they're not serious enough about obeying the command. Oh, we don't do it because we're trying to make much of ourselves. We're trying to do it because we want to make much of Him. This is not called the great suggestion. It's the great co-mission. Remember, he's with us always. He's not asking us to do anything that he's not doing. We just have a part to play. He's going to speak, but he's going to do it through somebody. It might as well be you. The Great Commission is the greatest command that he could give us. It's our greatest opportunity to invest in. It's our greatest chance to experience his presence. Because we listen to his claim to have authority and his promise to be with us 
We obey the command. And it goes without saying that there is no low if there is no go. Shame on us for wanting to know God's presence without desiring to be obedient. And we all want, we all want God to bless us. Well, God, God, look out for me. We want you to be as concerned about my junk as I am. He says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age when we recognize his authority and it motivates us to do what he wants. It's the stick and the carrot. Sometimes as a parent, you use the stick. You know what the stick is? Right there. You know, batter up. Sometimes the the carrot is, hey, you want an ice cream cone? Go clean your room. His authority, the stick, his presence, the ice cream cone. Which one's most effective? Depends on the circumstance. There are some days you're going to get up, you're not going to want to share. Sometimes you need the stick of, um, hey, you, all authority. Yeah, I still got it. I haven't given it up. It's mine. Go. Sometimes, ah, God is so near. He is so great. He is so good. I know in your heart you want to be better at sharing the gospel. I want to be better. We want our church to be better. You have the opportunity to receive training, and not just training accountability. It's like, we're going to make you go. You may not want to go. We're going to make you go. <laughs> and there's a bunch of you that have done it. Uh, Josh and Jess have done it. Uh, Sam, Donovan, we've had, we've had 20 or 30 people that did it last summer. And it's easier to do it because it stays daylight longer. We can do it over the summer. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to be a part of preparing them for baptism, teaching them? And knowing God's presence because we've obeyed his command. Father, we ask for you to uh, be with us, to challenge us. And we thank you so much for this promise that there is nothing that you're asking us to do that you've not already done. Help us to value, to love, to view as precious the Great Commission. Help us to have a heart for sharing the gospel. Help us to celebrate it. Help us to rearrange our lives in our church's schedule to prioritize it because there's, there's nothing that is more needed in our world than the proclamation of the gospel. May we be a church that goes, that baptizes, that teaches, and that celebrates all three. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.